Health IT. It's exciting, innovative, transformational. But behind all of the cool flashy lights and fancy new things that go bing, there's all the mission critical stuff. Regulation, standards and policy. As a regular listener of the show, you might be somewhat familiar with the policy and regulation in Australia, but what about the US? Well, strap yourselves in, because today on the show, I'm joined by none other than Steve Posnack from the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, the ONC, which is all about health IT for the US administration and a resource to their entire health system to support the adoption of health information technology and the promotion of nationwide standards-based health information exchange to improve healthcare. Today on the show, we're going to learn more about the health IT landscape in the US, what's happened in terms of regulation and policy, and how this might differ to Australia and other parts of the world, and lots more too, no doubt. Collaboration starts with the conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Steve Posnack. He's the Deputy National Coordinator for Health Information Technology in the US. As well as this, Steve also oversees ONC's federal coordination, regulatory policy, public-private initiatives, and the overall implementation of statutory authorities and requirements in the US. Hey, Steve, how are you going? How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to chat again. We've connected a few times, but we chatted very briefly on the show when you spoke at a conference in real life for the Medical Software Industry Association back in the day. So it was, uh, I I had hair. That's how long ago it feels, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the the olden days, as they say. So uh, Absolutely. Well, it's great to be back. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be able to deep dive into it a little bit more because particularly for Talking Health Tech, we're focused a lot on Australia, but... You know, with our website in particular, we've got a growing audience in the US and more guests are coming on. And it's interesting to hear about differences, nuances, and just specifically what's happening in the US as well. So it's good to jump into it. But firstly, for those that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about you and your background and what you do? Yes, absolutely. And I know uh, my title in the organization I work at is a mouthful, so I can <laughs> I can do the fast speak. Long story short, my wife always gives me a hard time for giving too many details when I tell a story. So I'll try to keep it succinct. It's good for a podcast, um, though. It's good for a podcast. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. We'll have the extended cut for all the listeners <laughs> at some point. You can make that part of the, the paid version. Um, <laughs> so uh, grew up in New York. So as we talk and I get enthusiastic, I will eventually speak at a more rapid pace just to prepare everybody. Um, but life journey into career originally started in computer science. And that's what my background is. And that was in the late 90s, was interested in computer science, video game development, software engineering, definitely wound up in a different career trajectory than I thought I know would have had. As many of the listeners of Jar Age would remember, in the early 2000s, we had the dot com bubble burst. I was really hard to get a software engineer job. And I did what any self respecting young adult did. I deferred adulthood. And I went to <laughs> secondary education graduate school for um, information security. And I was looking into, you know, cybersecurity in that field. And I happened to go to Johns Hopkins University, which many listeners may be familiar with. And, and while I was there, you know, world renowned for healthcare, wound up getting a uh, second master's degree in health policy. So then I started to look at the combination between 
security and health policy. Right at that time, my office had just been formed by an executive order under President W. Bush, as I like to call him. I found my way to applying to my office in 2005, and they haven't been able to get rid of me since. <laughs> so I am uh, 16 years now, if you can believe wow. it. Um, with my office having had, I don't know, six or seven jobs, this one has been, you know, certainly, as I like to describe my role as the number one, number two. And I serve as a career federal senior, senior official now for our office. I report directly to our political appointee just to give folks a sense of the hierarchy of the bureaucracy and, you know, oversee, as you briefly mentioned, all of our policy and technology work, that mission critical infrastructure activities that we get involved in and um, just get to dabble in everything that our team gets to work on, which is great fun for me because I've, I've worked on both sides of the office's work now at this point and uh, had a chance to lead it all. Amazing. And just to give more context to some of that work and what it impacts, so some of the recent policy work and everything that you're on, is there some things you can talk about there? Yeah, absolutely. Our work as a federal agency is driven in part by our mission interests, and uh, some of that's established by the United States Congress. There have been two main laws that have been passed in the, let's say, past 15 years that have really affected my office's work. One's called the High Tech Act. For those of you that are outside the U.S., may be familiar through the, the name Meaningful Use. That was the large mm. electronic health record adoption program in the United States. So that law, in addition to having EHR adoption incentives, included a, a number of new authorities for my office. So uh, some regulatory policy related to health IT certification, standards work, additional activities related to health information exchange and networks to build some overall connectivity and infrastructure in the United States. You fast forward from 2009, when that law came into effect to 2016, you had something called the 21st Century Cures Act. And so that was about building on the infrastructural investments that the country had made and helping expand at scale nationwide connectivity and interoperability across a number of use cases, uh, more of a day-to-day -day reality. Mm. Okay. And so then thinking about, I guess, either influenced by those two major policies or two major laws coming in, but also just generally healthcare. How have you seen healthcare ICT evolve and adapt in the US so over, say, your time in the 15, 16 years in your role? Yeah, that's the time band that I would prefer in general anyway. I know a number of my colleagues, you know, some of which I've worked with have been like, we've been at this since the 80s. And in some respects, that's depressing. And in other respects, there's been I think the best way that I look at it is that there isn't and there's rarely a transformative kind of light switch moment. You know, you just flip that switch and then all of a sudden. Rather, I like to describe it more as incremental progress that adds up quickly. You know, when you look back across many of the decades and you look back in specific for the time period that we're going to talk about, the 2010s, we had very quick, rapid progress that was incremental. And so, you know, we started at the beginning of the decade having very low EHR adoption. You fast forward to the end, 2019, 2020, greater than 95% of hospitals in the United States have electronic health record systems. Amazing accomplishment. The ambulatory side, physician practices and the like have slowly ratcheted their way up the ladder. And they're in the greater than 75%, 80% range. Certainly a lot of specialties, so it's a little bit more complicated in that space. But just reaching those adoption numbers have been pretty significant over the course of the past 10, 12 years. And that's where we've seen that evolution I think similarly, like Australia, because I know you all a little bit, there's a mix between government action and leadership to help set standards, to help clear the path in some respects to say, these are the places where we need to compete on as an economy. 
And these are the places where, you know, having stability, consistency, predictability are going to be really important for the market. And that's a balancing act that's always in motion between government and private sector. And that's one of the things that we are often engaged in from my office perspective, given the work that we do. Yeah. Is it too crass to say that really there's kind of two big elements to it? It's one, getting all of the data to be electronic, but then the second phase is the whole interoperability side, like making it talk to each other. Have I simplified it too much? No, I mean, it's a good way to break it down in the two-step process. Often, if you talk to the standards geeks, you know, they'll talk about it as uh, semantic and syntactic interoperability. In the United States, we have standardized tests. We call it the SAT, you know, the big words that people use. But it is a dynamic and I think a constant cycle of understanding the data that's available, how computable it is, if there are code systems, ways to digitally represent that data. You know, so if I have certain problems on my problem list, they have codes that go along with it that make it easier for computers to do that computational action, that data analysis that we love to have computers for, uh, because we don't want to do it. And so having all that put in place, getting that data digitized, and then finding ways to move it, again, to your interoperability point, are definitely areas where you have to take those two steps. Um, sometimes they happen smushed together. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about FIRE, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, or the acronym folks out there. Um, you know, that is a standard that leads to rapid deployment and a bit of a smushing uh, term of art there, uh, where you have both the data and the transport method built into that standards, you know, overall approach. And so... Quite often on the show, we'll feature vendors who are creating innovative technology to try and solve some tricky problems. But in the end, a lot of the conversations come down to, well, it's not a technology problem. Like all the technology exists that we need. And really the challenge is that there's one element of the change management side and the humans and they're doing that side, but also having the infrastructure in terms of policy and kind of the rules in place for it to happen as well. That seems very much where we're at right now. Yeah, it's definitely a uh, balance and a proportion of how much technology change is necessary in some cases and how much policy change is necessary in some cases. And so you often see different proportions of policy and technology, but you'll always see them together when something's happening successfully. So if I look back at some of the work that we've done, we've been too heavy on one or the other or doing one without the other in more of a serial kind of way, that's where we've run into hiccups and other roadblocks along the path for additional ramp up success, adoption, acceptance, change, because a lot of it is culture change, workflow change, training and education. It can't understate how much of that human element that you mentioned plays a role in overall success. Mm, mm. And it's not just the buy-in and the adoption of the technology to use the thing that's been acquired by the health system or the hospital or the clinic or whatever, it's engaging all the different stakeholders through that journey and delivering the right information at the right time. And in the end, delivering better patient outcomes is what it comes down to. To move back then to more around the standards and everything for a second, FIRE comes up a lot on the podcast and many would be quite familiar, but it seems pretty critical to a lot of things that are happening right now in the US. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so FIRE is great. And there's lots of hype associated with it. There'll be others in the community that would say, you know, HL7 V2 is dead and long live HL7 V2. And, you know, as I've given, you know, presentations along these lines, there are lots of deployed instances, use cases, infrastructure that is more like layers, you know, as I try to describe them at times. So for laboratory reporting and public health reporting in the United States, that is largely based on HL7 version two. 
related messaging. There are some new use cases that have emerged, certainly, you know, as a result of the pandemic, where fire may have good footing for patient access, uh, which is a big push in the U.S. as well. Getting that app, using it to connect up all your data is across, you know, many different healthcare providers. Uh, fire is the approach that people are using to date. We've actually regulated that as well in part of giving that government push. As a, a recent rulemaking that we established a couple of years ago, we've adopted Fire Release 4 in our regulatory structure to require that EHR developers in the United States, uh, insofar as they participate, you know, in government programs and the like, have to deploy Fire-based APIs to support both provider use for their own business purposes, as well as for uh, the B2C providers to patients in order to enable them to access their own health information via apps connecting via Fire. And that's an interesting one too, isn't it? Because there's always a side of the argument. One side is that change doesn't happen unless you have to, as in it's regulated. And then on the other side, it's like, well, if you bake in a standard or a particular way of doing it, then that's saying that that's the only one and there's no other way. And how can we be sure that that's the case? But a lot of thinking and considering would be done about that topic, no doubt. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, those conversations go in a lot of different ways. Sometimes you have the conversation and it's like, just tell us what we need to do and we'll go ahead and do it. Don't leave anything ambiguous for us. In other cases, it is more of a function of get everybody to do it the same way, but then let us compete on services, you know, that go on top of that. Uh, And Mm. so, you know, that's largely how we've tried to position things with respect to fire, where we've set an initial core set of data. We call it the United States core data for interoperability. It's a set of data elements that need to be accessible via those fire APIs. Obviously, fire is the connectivity mechanism and data representation. But after that, there's no, you know, specific requirements around user interface or other types of app performance and the like. So there's a certain place where the government stops and the market has room to innovate and continue on to compete. I'm not sure if this comes up because it, potentially it's more of a funding issue, but we've seen COVID past 18, 24 months. It's really forced everyone to speed up a lot of decisions. And in healthcare, speeding up decisions is not usually in the wheelhouse. And so has that really played a factor on your side often in terms of some of these decisions and policies that need to get through that could have taken quite a number of years needed to happen really quickly? We've definitely seen investments and progression through that thought process in a much faster way than you'd normally see, especially on the bureaucracy side, you know, speaking from the federal, there are a number of things as a result of being part of the pandemic response where testing has been a big issue, reporting has been a big issue, being able to get access to that data for broader population analytics and getting a better overall understanding of population have been uh, big components in terms of looking at workflows, looking at data flows, understanding the systems that are involved, making those infrastructural investments, bringing in other parties. So we have these health information exchanges across the United States, uh, well over 100. They operate in a particular state or in a different metropolitan region or a particular geographic region. And uh, they have established connectivity among hospitals and healthcare providers. And they've stepped up to play a role as well for the pandemic response and, and being able to connect data uh, sources together. So I think it's helped sharpen focus and kind of flip that lens to say, how can we look at this problem differently now, given the pressures of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And so we've talked a bit about what's happened so far and what we're working on right now, you know, into a new year, 2022, what are some of the key focuses and milestones for health ICT in, in your view? Excellent. And I could do your listeners one better. We're looking at 2030. Wow. And cool. just, that's right. That's right. Just as a 
quick public service announcement if folks are interested. Uh, earlier last year, we did a bit of a public engagement process where we said, what should 2030 look like? And so we framed this as health interoperability outcomes. You know, what are the interoperability outcomes that we should be driving toward to this decade? By the end of 2030, because of interoperability, we'll have these things. And we'll just be able to look back and say, how do we live without them? And so that's available on our website. I would encourage you to go to healthit.gov. I'm sure our communications people will enjoy that I, I snuck that in. Um, rewinding back for 2022, doesn't take much of a crystal ball for me to predict some of these things because some of them are built into our regulatory timeline and it'll be great to give listeners a heads up on what's to come. So we have a number of provisions in our, our what we call our Cures Act, 21st Century Cures Act final rule. Some of them are technology related. Some of them are more on the policy related side. Two that I'll highlight, one is around the Firebase APIs. So that the health IT developers in the United States that go through our certification program have until the end of this year to roll out their Firebase APIs to healthcare providers. And so we'll start to see a big change toward the end of 2022, leading into 2023, of having at scale nationwide deployed Firebase APIs in the healthcare ecosystem. The hope is that that will establish greater opportunities for connectivity, competition, new market services that can be based on those Fire APIs. You know, again, like we talked about earlier, having that standardization there in place allows for predictability and more competition on top. The other component, which is more policy related, is the information blocking. And this is a kind of term of art that is maybe US specific uh, data blocking might be the other reference that, you know, might be used more generally. Uh, that was established by law in Congress to say there are certain practices that we don't want to have happen in the US economy. And information blocking was one of those. And so we established through our regulatory process a number of what are called exceptions, which is when it's okay to not share information, but otherwise the presumption is information is supposed to be shared. And that's effectively the way that the law is set up. There's this kind of overriding presumption and expectation that electronic health information as it's framed will be shared. And only if you can't, will you need to comply with one of these exceptions that we've established. So toward the end of this year, the full scope of what's called electronic health information will kick in from a regulatory compliance perspective. And that will have another big impact on healthcare providers, health information networks, and health IT developers related to their compliance. There's two pieces yeah. there. Um, yeah, okay. A couple of questions. So coming back to the one around mandating fire APIs by the end of this year, a lot of work for the vendors to do, no doubt. Is there much impact on work to hospitals as well in that process? Yeah, there's definitely, as you, you put your finger on it, uh, you know, work for the software developers first, but there will be deployment upgrades and just, I think, engagement overall, both from a, an education process within the healthcare providers, hospitals, et cetera, as well as putting myself in patient's shoes. There's a component for them of doing patient engagement and making mm. sure that their patients, their customers are aware of their new capabilities to access health information. And so that's going to be both the culture change as well as the workflow and work process change as well and make this digitally accessible. That's an interesting component of it too, isn't it? Because there's so much that happens behind the scenes or, you know, in the plumbing, so to speak. And I, I hear people talk about fire as the plumbing often as well. But if we do so much of that inwardly focused kind of talk, often we forget about what the outcomes, like why it's happening. <laughs> and it probably ties to that second point around information blocking, or at least it does in my mind, where from a patient's perspective, if you came out to me from the outset and said, health information is meant to be shared, there's an element of privacy and, and you know, everything that you would think. So there's a fair bit of trust and understanding and communication that would need to happen to the broader public as well, which is no doubt part of all of this. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting that the healthcare space and us as individuals, and we participate in, you know, different industries, sometimes it feels like we're working in the past because we keep talking about fax machines and phone calls and other modalities of communication that are very outmoded in terms of other industries. And so if I want to just check my account balance with my bank, just go online, I have an app I can do, you know, if I want to transfer funds to you because we went out to dinner, I'm able to do all those things. So there are dynamics of the consumer economy that are far different for healthcare experiences. And that's some of the changeover that we're starting to see, both in terms of patient engagement, new apps, greater ability to connect, make that happen via technology, which we hope will empower individuals to have a better view into their care. You know, I'm always struck in the fact that I didn't go to medical school. I have super deep respect for all of my friends and colleagues that have, um, you know, amazing accomplishment for all of them. And they have to see so many patients every day, right? And they go through that process. But when it's your disease, it's your chronic condition, you're putting the time into it. And so by getting access to your health information, that gives you more of an opportunity to feel like you have a role in your care and you can wrap your head around the condition or the steps that you're going down for your health. And being able to make it possible for people to have that feeling and have a real sense of investment in their own care. I think, you know, one of those other factors that is that intangible aspect of being able to access your own data. That's important. And, you know, even from my own personal perspective, because there's a lot of people too, where like, I don't really want to look after my own health care, but coming from my own personal experience, particularly last year, likely if you don't, then someone in your family does. And when you're incapacitated and so someone's caring for you, the amount of work required to get information from different specialists and medication, everything, like so many people have been through that. And it's only when you're there and you realize this is awful. And again, it's all the carers around it that need this type of access and capability as well. So yeah, super important for all of us. We do have many healthcare innovators, technology innovators in Australia listening to the podcast and global expansion is always somewhere on that timeline. Have you got any advice on how to approach moving into the US market with the piece of health technology? Yeah, I have one simple rule, get acquired by a US company. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Walmart. That's <laughs> I mean, it could it could make it could make a ton of business sense for them. So I don't want to dissuade them from getting acquired. But in seriousness, that that was not my serious answer. You know, I know in some respects it may seem hard, right? Because it depends. You know, what they're looking to do, what market they're looking to get into. Certain segments are more or less highly regulated. You know, the medical device space versus providing certain tools to an enterprise client or something along those lines. So, you know, it does create a steep learning curve to be able to figure out where do I enter the market? What layers of law do I need to figure out? What federal agencies or state agencies may I need to check in with to figure out what my compliance obligations may need to be? How do I get a foothold or or an entry point into working with hospitals, which may be vastly different than working for ambulatory providers in the space or picking a different segment of the market, long-term post-acute care, for example, or behavioral or mental health. So figuring out their market segment And understanding, you know, what that landscape looks like in the United States is just, I would say, basic homework that would be really helpful for them to do. The other part, there are lots of incubators, startup communities out there across the U.S., different metropolitan, large cities, regions. And so I would say, like, if you are interested in working on the West Coast, because that may be slightly more friendly time zone wise, you know, for Australian companies, not that that would make too much of a difference. 
But I would say, you know, look into those communities, find out where there's that groundswell, those grassroots activities among the peers in your space, and also identifying the type of technology area niche that they may be working in as well, and where that may be, if the space is really crowded, you know, maybe there's something else to look at. But finding those common interests, it would definitely be something that I think help bridge the cross-country uh, market penetration. Yeah. And I know from my own experience, I think of, you know, the total market size of clinicians in my area that I was working, say, with dermatologists, yep. that was in the organization I was at with our US counterpart who's just scaling out. They were able to start a pilot with one university that had more dermatologists than all of Australia. So that the sheer size of it is is scary. Like, And so I think the original kind of thought were prove it in Australia and then go elsewhere because it's a nice kind of market size. It's kind of the same, but it's not. But I think when you're dealing with such a broad size difference, sometimes it's not as easy as that. So I think having those connections and understanding the market and tweaking as needed for that particular area makes a lot of sense too. And I think that as well, this is even pre-GDPR days, a lot of the times it used to be just become HIPAA compliant and everything else is kind of just backwards from there. So that's the highest level of care. But even these days, if from an Australian's point of view, it's not as simple as just because you're HIPAA compliant. A lot of the tools we use are HIPAA compliant. So by virtue, it's not your ticket to play anymore. There's a lot more to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you made a real good point that um, in some cases, the scale of the US is both an advantage and a disadvantage. But on the mm. advantage side, finding a motivated CIO or innovation officer, you know, some of the large academic medical centers or larger healthcare delivery systems have their own innovation portfolios and investment and venture arms. And so that may mm. be an easy way to plug into the market where they can get a bit of a champion or a sponsor to pilot something out. And then using it, like you said, using the proof positive of an experience in Australia and then translating that into the U.S. market could be done at a smaller U.S. scale place that is equivalent to that experience. Yeah, that's great advice. And look, I'll put some details in the show notes of this episode for people to check out too, because like you say, there are a lot of good incubators that have connection across Australia and the US too for people to check out. But look, Steve, I really appreciate you making the time for this conversation. We've explored a good range of topics and managed to throw some pretty lame dad jokes in there too. So I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. That's right. That's awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.